0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast, for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 113 for the final third of June 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the blue limb of Mars. This all gets back to a previous episode I did, number 74, The True Color of Mars, Way back then, last May, I addressed the claim that NASA and all other space agencies that have been to Mars, but conspiracists tend to ignore those other ones, so it's mainly NASA has been hiding the true color of Mars from us sheeple here on the ground. That, in reality, it looks just like Earth. The reason they're hiding it is... Possibly many different ones, including that we never went there, or that there's alien life there that they're trying to hide, or that President Barack Obama went there when he was a teenager. But they're hiding it. That's the general consensus. In that episode, I went through and explained that NASA isn't hiding the quote-unquote true color of Mars, and I explained how you can tell. But there's a little talked about other part of that conspiracy, one that conspiracists who are in the know about it will leap to. Real, genuine images from NASA itself, taken by the Hubble Space Telescope, show a bluish haze near the limb of the planet, the edge of the disk. Surely this means that all of the cover-up is true, that the sky on Mars really is blue and it looks just like Earth. Maybe yes, maybe no. Last episode, I got down to basics and talked about the steps in any investigation. First, find out if the phenomenon is real. If it is, then second, find out all of the possible explanations and then determine which is most likely to be correct. Last episode, we never got past the first part, because the data showed that Mercury's magnetic field is not actually changing. But now, we can repeat the questions. And you can find real images from NASA in as close to true color as possible, or at least that we can estimate, and they show that Mars has a reddish-orange disk, and then right along one of its limbs, or sometimes the whole disk, is a faint ring of blue. It is real. So now we have to ask, what could cause it? Maybe it's an anomaly with Hubble. And if the limb of the planet, the upper atmosphere, appears to be blue from Earth, Would the entire atmosphere appear blue from the surface of the planet? It may seem like an obvious yes, but maybe it's not. On Earth, from the ground, and from an airplane, or most anywhere else, the sky appears to be blue due to a process called Rayleigh scattering, or Rayleigh scattering, named for the 19th to 20th century British physicist Lord Rayleigh. Well, actually his name was John William Strutt, 3rd Baron of Rayleigh, but we call him Lord Rayleigh for short. His friends may have called him John, but I don't know, I wasn't around then. The process is where light is scattered. It's distributed in all directions, or many, many directions, by particles much smaller than the wavelength of that light itself. This can be done by particles as in dust, and also by particles as in molecules. In Rayleigh scattering, there is a very, very strong inverse dependence on the wavelength of light. This means that the shorter wavelengths of light are scattered more strongly, much more strongly than longer wavelengths. Blue light has a much shorter wavelength than red light by, well, not maybe much, but by roughly 25%, meaning that it's scattered by about three to four times more than red light. So even though blue light is only 25% shorter in its wavelength, it's scattered a lot more than red light. And since blue light is scattered about more, that means that it appears to come from everywhere, hence why the sky appears to be blue. At this point for Earth, you would therefore expect a blue sky. Light from the sun is scattered through the atmosphere, but blue light is much more scattered than red, therefore the sky appears blue. I sort of just repeated myself, but it's an important concept, and actually it's probably one of the first that most children ask in terms of science. They ask their parent, legal guardian, or whomever, why is the sky blue? In addition to this, in addition to the Rayleigh scattering or Rayleigh scattering, the various molecules in the atmosphere will not only scatter light, but they can also absorb it. Molecular nitrogen, or N2, is the dominant component of the atmosphere for 70% of it, but molecular oxygen also plays a role. N2 is very transparent to visible light, but O2 and high-altitude O3, or ozone, tend to absorb light in the ultraviolet end of the spectrum, barely leaking into visible violet. Meanwhile, carbon dioxide, or CO2, will also absorb light, but this is in the infrared wavelengths, hence why it's a greenhouse gas. So at this point, I've established that Earth's atmosphere should appear bluish, primarily because of Rayleigh scattering and molecules that do not really affect visible light absorption. Those ones that I just discussed, N2O2, O3, CO2, they affect wavelengths that are not generally visible. Even though there are other molecules that are in Earth's atmosphere that can absorb light, they aren't really numerous enough to do much to the overall color. But there's also dust. Dust on Earth is typically the size of about 10 microns, and particles that are 10 times smaller or 10 times larger than these 10 microns are less than 10% as prevalent, or at least based on the studies that I could find of the dust size distribution in Earth's atmosphere. These dust particles are much larger than individual molecules, and so they don't contribute to the Rayleigh scattering of visible light. What they can do is scatter light in what is known as Mi, M-I-E, scattering, which is the scattering of light of a similar wavelength to the particles. But again, the dust particles are mostly large 10 microns, which is the infrared area of the spectrum. So, they will have a minimal effect on the visible color of the atmosphere from Earth's surface, where there are most of the dust particles, or when seen from space. So, as far as visible light is concerned, therefore, on Earth, you're almost exclusively talking about Rayleigh scattering, which is why the sky looks blue both from the surface and from space. Contrast this with Mars, Mars does have an atmosphere, although it's much thinner than Earth's, with only about 1% the pressure at the surface, the average surface anyway. It's also predominantly CO2, carbon dioxide. Rayleigh scattering will again take effect and cause the atmosphere to appear bluish if nothing else were to take a stronger effect. From space, this is why it appears blue, for the same exact reason that Earth's atmosphere appears blue from space, Rayleigh scattering. From the surface, it's a different case. Dust on Mars tends to be most prevalent at about 1.5 microns, which is about 10 times smaller than it is on Earth. Even though this is still in the infrared, it's close enough to red, visible red light is about half that wavelength, for me scattering to begin to impose a red light color. So you have a different situation on Mars. The dust is smaller, meaning that the scattering that takes place on Earth in the infrared part of the spectrum from me scattering can start to be visible in red light on Mars. And we usually have cameras on the surface that are sensitive to the infrared, but anyway, besides scattering, the dust itself is derived from the material of the surface, and measurements by the Viking 1 lander show that the dust is approximately 1% iron oxide, also known as rust. Rust is red meaning that it absorbs blue light and reflects and scatters red light, hence why it doesn't reflect blue light so it doesn't look blue, but it scatters red light right back at your eyes or the camera or whatever, and so it looks red. Meaning that when you have a bunch of particles suspended in the lower atmosphere of Mars, near the surface, that are absorbing blue light and scattering red light all around, it's probably going to look a little bit red. But again, Mars' atmosphere is very thin, and although the surface gravity is less than Earth's, it's not enough. The air is not dense enough to really loft the dust many, many, many kilometers off the Martian surface into the upper atmosphere. So, I've just put in a lot of disparate little facts. Let's all put it together, or let's put it all together. Mars' basic atmospheric gases will give it a blue tint, which we see from spacecraft observations like HST, the Hubble Space Telescope. Meanwhile, atmospheric dust is red itself, which will preferentially scatter red light, yet it's most prevalent close to the ground, barely anything up in the upper atmosphere. Therefore, we would expect to see a bluish atmospheric limb of Mars from space, the outer atmosphere where you can't really see any dust, but you would expect to see a reddish atmospheric haze when on the surface because you're looking through that dust which is scattering all of the red light because it is made mostly or at least partially of a very red iron oxide. So we have a case where if we follow the basic known physics and we use independent observations of atmospheric composition, dust composition, and surface composition, from these basic observations we would actually expect what we do see. The bluish atmospheric glim of Mars from space, but a reddish atmospheric haze when close to the surface. But why are Martian sunsets blue, might scream a conspiracist, and it's late at night when I'm recording this, so I'm not going to scream. The reason is that the red light has been scattered out by the dust. The setting sun goes through so much more atmosphere than when the sun is high overhead, and so more and more and more red light is scattered around by those dust particles. This leaves primarily the blue light to come through since Rayleigh scattering plays a smaller, relative role to the dust. You can think of this as a situation where Rayleigh scattering is going on, so the sky would appear bluish by default, but the dust scattering that makes things reddish is much stronger during the day. At sunset, the dust scattering red light is so strong that it's pretty much extracted through red light, and so the blue light scattered by Rayleigh scattering is what's seen close to the sun at sunset. By way of a wrap-up, let's just put it as this. Science is hard, but conspiracy is easy. And this is a very good example of that. It would be much, much easier to simply look at the blue haze-on-the-limb images, the red sky-from-the-surface images, and literally just stop thinking and say it's a conspiracy. Going through the process of understanding different types of light scattering, researching or even measuring forms of dust and their sizes and colors, and putting all of that together is much harder. It involves much more thinking, and involves even designing experiments to measure and test ideas. It might even require sending a spacecraft with a new multi-million dollar instrument to the surface or in orbit of Mars to really test those ideas. Or, you can just say, uh, it's a conspiracy, to put it bluntly, despite all of the cognitive dissonance that conspiracy thinking requires, going the conspiracy route is simply lazy. I have three somewhat longer pieces of feedback for this episode, so let's get right to it with the first topic being the last episode's topic of the magnetic field of Mercury. It was pointed out by Richard on the Facebook's pages that I didn't actually get into why Russell Humphreys thinks that a decaying magnetic field is evidence for creationism in the first place. All I discussed was that his model predicted a certain amount of decay, but that's not what was seen. Richard, you owe me, because to answer this, I actually had to read through Humphrey's paper. Here's the connection, at least as far as I can figure it out. God made everything out of water to start with, or at least the planets and stars. God later converted some of that water into rocks and other stuff, but it all started as water. He uses 2 Peter 3, 5, or however you say that in Bible speak, as justification. Quote, And the earth was formed out of water and by water. I could use my southern accent, but I've been told that it's actually more of a Texas accent and that I do a great disservice, so I shan't do that, at least not now. Anyway, uh, so after God made all this stuff out of water, he lined up all of the water molecules in each body so that their magnetic orientations were the same. Since water molecules are set up where a hydrogen atom is connected to an oxygen atom is connected to a hydrogen atom and the two hydrogen atoms make a 104.5 degree angle with the oxygen at the apex, the side with the oxygen is negatively charged and the side with the hydrogen is positively charged. So, assuming that the mass of Earth, or in this case, Mercury, was all water, and you know the weight of water, so you know how many water molecules made up Mercury to start with, then you can sort of kind of calculate the magnetic moment of water, the water molecule. You assume that God jump-started everything with an electric current to produce a self-sustaining dynamo that's dying out, and then you somehow get a starting magnetic field you get a, as in magnetic field, strength. He assumes an exponential decay of that field fits his initial number with Earth and Mercury and the Moon and Venus and everything else to determine how quickly the field is decaying from the beginning, and then gets a simple equation to predict what the field will be for each body in the future. So in other words, you start with water, God spins up the water so it's all facing the same way, starts it with an electric charge, and you have a magnetic field that you can theoretically, supposedly, in his idea, calculate what that magnetic field would be 6,000 years ago. You then put in a few more data points in time based on spacecraft observations or observations on Earth, of Earth, and you fit an exponential decay, and from that fit you can predict it out in the future. So that's apparently how he gets that. It should have decayed by 4.4% since create or not since creation, since Mariner 10 visited in 1975, based on what he thinks it was at creation 6,000 and some odd years ago, BC, 404 BC, something like that, October, something rather. Anyway, so uh, that's how he does it. And uh, yeah, so there you go, Richard. Next bit of feedback is related to episode 109, another recent one. The one with Marshall Masters, the fake story of Planet X part 9, I think. David, or at Chudley Cannons on Twitter, informed me that Marshall Masters was on Coast to Coast AM again on the evening of June 20th into the 21st. I listened to the two hours he was on, and... It was more of the same. Nothing really new, except now apparently he's at war with Amazon.com, which is conspiratorially trying to keep his books out of the hands of you, the sheeple. Interestingly, there was no questioning about why nothing happened six months ago, when he said that Planet X would be seen and death and destruction would happen in the winter months of 2013-2014. That's winter for the Northern Hemisphere. Instead, he is now convinced, to use his term, that Planet X will be visible all across the world by 2016. That'll be the five-year anniversary of this podcast, so we'll see what happens if I'm still on the air. Marshall was also questioned by three callers about the veracity of his claims. The first caller pointed out that Earth moves around the Sun during the course of a year. In fact, in just a day, it moves a full degree in its orbit. So... How can Planet X always remain hidden behind the Sun? Another caller pointed that out too, and also that we know the motions of the planets to incredible precision, and so we should see some sort of deviation caused by Planet X's gravity. In response, Marshall effectively claimed magic. I'm not making that up, though, no, he didn't actually use the term magic. Instead, He made up some silly analogy about a carousel, which implied that Planet X literally matches our speed just right to stay hidden. But he then went on to say that they've known for a while that Planet X doesn't behave the normal laws of motion, that it changes velocity and direction. So, as I said, magic. He also said that it's on a corkscrew path, just like Earth is, and that our corkscrews are getting closer together, and... Magic, The third caller, who I'm claiming challenged him, but I'm not really sure if it was meant to be a challenge or not, said that he actually calculated an orbit based on images and video that Marshall posted on his website. And strangely enough, he couldn't get a consistent orbit when using different sets of images or video, but every individual orbit that he calculated from a small series of images or video kept putting the object In Earth's orbit. He didn't vocalize the next logical step, at least to me, that maybe that's because Marshall is posting pictures of lens flares and other optical artifacts that are gasp photographed by people on Earth with objects, as in the lenses, that are on Earth. Therefore, you're going to get an orbit of an object that's on Earth, or at least in Earth's orbit. Based on the frequency of Marshall Masters' appearances, and the absolute lack of holding Marshall Masters to any of his past dates, or understanding the science, or even questioning the alleged science that he spouts, I expect that Marshall Masters will continue to be on coast-to-coast for the foreseeable future, spouting doom and gloom and crappy science. The next date is two years out, so we'll see if anyone tries to hold him accountable in 2016. The final follow-up for this episode is related to the Sidonia movie. I wanted to first thank all of you who shared the movie that I made and rated it on YouTube especially. It performed far and above my expectations, currently about three weeks after launch at just under 15,000 views. And it hit 10,000 views after only four days on YouTube. Plus, those of you who were forced to download it because I put it in the podcast feed. Reviews have been favorable, and there have been some criticisms. Interestingly, the criticisms are almost entirely focused on things I didn't do or say, effectively non-sequiturs or strawmen. I'd say that that means that I, and those of you who helped make modifications early on, did a fairly good job. As an example of some of the criticism I've gotten, some have claimed that no one seriously considers the stuff at Cydonia and the geometry alleged to be there as important to Mars anomalists anymore. Uh, no. They should read Mike Barr's book from last year and probably the one from this year, and the, it, yeah. unfortunately his book is still um, near the top of Amazon's Mars books. I don't know how, probably because Amazon doesn't care what science is or isn't. Uh, saying that Cydonia is not important anymore or the geometry there isn't important anymore to Mars anomalists is just wrong. And even if it were correct, the type of of claim that is made by Hoagland, or that was made by Hoagland in the 80s, is still prevalent today, this basic geometry and numerology kind of claim, even if the specifics about it as related to the Sidonia features are no longer made by people, but they are still made by people. Another example is from Keith Laney's forum, and interestingly, Keith actually still says that Cydonia still has all that geometry, so he's another one of those anomalous that apparently doesn't exist anymore, but anyway... Another example is from Keith Laney's forum, where the first person who responded to a post there about the movie said that I shouldn't have used the Mars orbiter camera images. He said that I presented my measurements as true science, and third, that I misled the viewer by creating numerous variations of the shape of the DNM pyramid based on the carlotto Hoagland line drawing of the DNM pyramid. The problem for Zip, who was the poster, is that I did absolutely none of those things. I didn't use mock images, I showed my measurements just for the sake of showing measurements but then clearly showed that you can get whatever angles you want, and I didn't mislead the viewer by creating variations based on Holland's model but rather on my measurements of the pyramid or from a perfect pentagram. Zip then asked that I provide the links to the CTX image that I used before he was going to actually respond to anything that I said, And then when I did provide the links to the CTX image that I used that showed the DNM pyramid on a single frame because he said that none existed, I said that it can be previewed, as in, it has not been geographically corrected yet here. That's a quote, previewed, as in, it has not been geographically corrected yet here, and then the link was to here, and I provided that link to the image. Zip responded, quote, so Robbins didn't use Malin's flat and distorted mock-composite image of the DNM, but he did use a squat and distorted CTX image and he admits it is not geographically corrected." End quote. At that point I gave up. There's simply no point in arguing against stupid when someone just refuses to even read your response, because clearly I stated that that was a preview image, It was not the actual version of the image I used, but it was a preview image to show that it had that feature. Keith Laney himself later responded, and he wondered why I didn't use any image that was taken from directly overhead. In fact, he stated that it was impossible, quote, There is no, as in not one, with those words capitalized, CTX image of the D&M with an emission or slant angles good enough to be made into an accurate nadar view, or nadir view, which is what you need for what he's trying. You can turn a semi-oblique image into one that looks nadir, but you've screwed the Pythagorean pooch in doing so. End quote. The problem is, he then provides a list of CTX images that cover the pyramid, incidentally actually covering the entire pyramid in one frame, something that Zip said doesn't exist, but then he doesn't give the slew or slant angle the very thing that he says that I need to have to be zero degrees to do this correctly. He's saying that it doesn't exist, that these images that have a slant angle that were taken at a slant angle of zero degrees don't exist, and then he provides the images, but he doesn't provide the slant angle to show that they're all non-zero. Half the images in actuality actually are at approximately zero degrees so what he's getting at is that many times spacecraft are going to take an image of something when they're not looking directly straight down on it that means that you get something of a perspective shot you can then do some math and correct it as though you were looking straight down but it won't be absolutely 100 percent perfect ideally you want an image that looks straight down to start with and there are even though Keith says they don't exist. In fact, about half of the images, the CTX images, of the DNM pyramid that he listed have slant angles of less than one degree. But he just didn't give that data column to disprove or prove, but it would have disproven, what he was saying. Again, at that point, I didn't bother to send in a response because it's simply not worth it. There comes a point in an argument where you realize that the other person simply is not playing by any standards, the minimum standards being to actually pay attention to what you're saying, and to not deliberately ignore information which disproves their case. And it brings me back to what I said initially. I think I did a fairly good job, if I can give myself a pat on the back with you all listening. Yeah, I I think that made it into the microphone, there we go. Uh, So... I think that I and those of you who helped did a pretty good job, especially if the only criticisms are based on straw men or non sequiturs and not anything I actually did or didn't do. And uh, those of you who helped, and for those of you who don't know, most of what they did, those who helped, was to identify things that were not really explained very clearly or to identify places where I might get criticism and possibly legitimate criticism. So It's really good to try to stem that off to begin with for stuff like this. I'm hoping that the next movie will come out by the end of August, but I'm going through a bit of a job transition over the next few months and catching up on stuff that I didn't do while working on the Sidonia movie, so I don't expect it to be out before August 31st, but we will see. As for announcements, first off, related to what I just talked about, as I was recording this, in fact, about two minutes ago, I just got an email from Professor Raymond Hall, or Ray Hall, who curates the Sunday paper session at TAM. And I have been invited to, well, after I applied, I've been invited to give a presentation at the Sunday paper session. And it is going to be on the dot dot dot, or drumroll please, Cydonia region of Mars. So basically, the movie uh, shortened into about a 12 to 15 minute version with 5 minutes for questions. So, for those of you who are going to TAM, uh, you should stop by. In addition to that, as a reminder in general that TAM is coming up. In fact, as I record this, it's something like less than 3 weeks away. So if anyone is interested in coming to a meetup, please let me know. So far, it's just going to be me and my very, very large box of chocolates. I also wanted to make a note regarding my release schedule, which some of you may have noticed has been a little bit off lately. The excuses are the usual, but ostensibly the podcast is quote-unquote supposed to come out on the 1st, 11th, and the 21st of the month. And that's how I date them in the RSS feed. But... In the intro, I state that this episode is for a certain third of the month, so that's sort of been the justification in my head for not getting it out on time and day or three late. Looking at my upcoming schedule, I think that you can probably unfortunately expect a little bit of the same, at least until September. They should be out on approximately the 1st, 11th, and 21st, but it won't necessarily be exactly on those dates. But I still plan to do three a month, so, um, at least for this foreseeable future, so we'll see how it goes. That wraps up this topic for the 113th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned, maybe a lot, maybe a little, at least something, at the same time as you were listening. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the form on the website or send an email directly to podcast.sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for the episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me, at pseudo, P-S-E-U-D-O, astro, A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback, and if you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or podcast website or service of choice, and if you liked it tell your friends family and share it around lots of internet forums have miscellaneous or general conversation post about it there